Off the ball's the best, number one. It's the GOAT of sports apps. Talk about the greatest of all time. Big Joe's the greatest of all time. He's the GOAT. We know it. <laughs> I, I'm going to say right. I'm the Djokovic of this scenario. <laughs> I love it. Love it. Download the OTB Sports app now. OTB AM. The Sports Breakfast Show from Off the Ball. We're going to turn our attention to uh, matters of football. We have Jonathan Wilson, football journalist, joining us on the line. Morning, Jonathan. How are things? Yeah, good, thanks. How are you? Brilliant. Keeping well, thank you very much. Um, I guess we'll start with Stephen Gerrard. Um, we could start in a number of places, but uh, he's the latest big name to make this uh, move to Saudi Arabia. Uh, deal to become the head coach of Al Etifak. So we're returning to management, of course, first time since being sacked by Aston Villa last October. I guess the, the, it's, I mean, I saw Robbie Fowler was moving to the second tier in Saudi Arabia as well. Uh, less and less surprising as the weeks go on that all these big names are heading off, I guess. Yeah, and I, I think with Stephen Gerrard, you were sort of starting to wonder where where would his next job be? You know, I, I think Villa, particularly given how well it's gone since he left, I think that really has sort of damaged his reputation within England. Um, and so would a Premier League club go for him? It's hard to, hard to imagine that. Maybe as sort of a Hail Mary last sort of month of the season in a sort of Sam Allardyce way. Um, and then, yeah, a championship club, well, you know, he's going to be pretty expensive. So... I, and I wonder as well whether his reputation, through no fault of his own, is, is damaged by sort of association with Frank Lampard, that even now we can't quite separate the two in our mind. And so the fact that Lampard failed so badly at Chelsea, that's also damaged Gerrard's reputation. So I guess going overseas where his name does still have a cachet, uh, I guess that makes sense. And, and you know, Saudi Arabia's the place everybody's going, it's where all the money is. Uh, it's interesting he's not going to one of these four PIF-owned clubs, mm. but clearly... You know, every club there has some kind of state involvement. So, um, you know, the source of the money is, is is pretty obvious. If you were offered a job, Jonathan, over there to be a journalist and you were offered obscene money, would you go? No. Why not? Uh, um, because, I, I, you know, we, it's very hard to take absolutely clean money, but I think there's levels of clean. So, you know, I, I used to work for a newspaper. You know, I was, I was freelance, but I used to work for a newspaper in Saudi Arabia. And I don't anymore. And that's, that was partly sort of a mutual parting of ways, but it was partly that I was sort of thinking, you know, I'm not, I'm not comfortable with this. I also worked for one in the UAE, um, that I left. So, you know, I, I think I was, you know, I, I took those jobs naively. I didn't really sort of, thought, you know, think through where the money was coming from. Um, and as I say, it's not easy in journalism to find totally clean money, but I think state ownership when, they are states with with their records on on human rights. I think, yeah, you you uh, you have to be very very careful. And you have to think really carefully about what your values are, and and what you what you, you know, what you prioritise. Yeah, I've I've worked for Murdoch. I've worked for the Evening Standard, which is led by their own paper. So, like you know, I I'm I'm probably a hypocrite in this as well. But the one thing for me, Jonathan, was like my club, Galway United, voted to be taken over by uh, a Saudi ostensibly non-government fund uh, a few years ago and it fell through inexplicably but that was an interesting um, conflict of a lot of things because Galway United didn't really have any assets so I was thinking of the downsides were kind of ne- were kind of negligible um, but then really lived to regret it looking at the Newcastle experience and the whole sports washing thing but like can you if you're a Newcastle fan where are you at now? Um, I think it's really difficult and I've got a lot of sympathy for people yeah I, I I grew up in Sunderland. Um, I'm a Sunderland fan. I went to watch Newcastle quite a lot when I was a kid because I had mates who were Newcastle fans and you know, we'd go to Sunderland one week, Newcastle the next. Um, 
and I don't know what 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 you do if if your club is suddenly swallowed up and and taken over by by a by a state body. On the one hand, I guess it's very hard not to be excited for a Newcastle fan by the level of football you're playing, the fact that you're back in the Champions League, the fact that you're, you're buying um, players of extremely high quality. Uh, I guess that is thrilling, but I think I'd feel pretty uncomfortable about it. And the, the only, you know, until you're in that position, I, I think it's almost impossible to know. But when Paolo Di Canio was Sunderland manager, that was, there was a slight equivalence there. And my attitude to that was, okay, keep us up and then get out of the club as quickly as possible by whatever means that takes. And he did keep us up and then had a, thankfully had a really bad start the following season and was sacked pretty quickly. So that didn't drag on. Um, and yeah, there were, there were some Southern fans stopped going to games because of uh, Di Canio's right-wing leanings. Um, and yeah, the, the, the uh, Durham Miners particularly were, were very opposed to any of the... the, the um, uh, if you go to Sunderland now, you see the the, the, the banners from the uh, miners groups are still displayed before games. That's that's a real core part of the club, and that clearly politically was very powerful in the twentieth century, and is a, is a key part of the identity of the club. And they felt the Canio and his politics were radically opposed to what they stood for, what the club should stand for. And I, I admired them for taking that stance. I still went and watched them during that time. I mean, I was, not often because I was working most most weekends, but occasionally I went to watch them. And I still want them to win, and and that is a level of hypocrisy. I think you can't can't really get around. Uh, I think if my club was taken over by a state, I was utterly opposed to. I I I, I hope I would I would step away, and, and hope it would be possible at some point in the future to to step back into it. But yeah, you know, it's easy for me to say living in London, not going regularly. If you're, yeah, you know, say say life would work that differently, and I'd still been up in the northeast. And yeah, that, that 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 every other Saturday going to the pub with my mates, going to the game, that was sort of part of the ritual. That's that that was the conditions in which you met your friends. Um, that was your sort of big relaxation. Asking people to step away from that um is 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 pretty difficult. You could go to non league clubs and the northeast is is replete with very, very good non league clubs, but obviously it's a it's a very, very different thing. This does, uh, I'm trying, I'm almost taking over the presenting here, sorry Shane, but uh, Colin did send the, the article that Jonathan wrote um, in The Guardian at the weekend. Football clubs were born to represent communities and fans, not owners. As multi-club ownership shows, the game, especially in England, has lost sight of the notion of football as a civic good. I'd implore anyone to read this article and, um, you know, even... Even Shelburne, like uh, in Ireland, have become part of a multi-club model now here, a small club in, in North Dublin, but... Um, this really, really, uh, I, I felt reading this article, it, it struck with me because, y- you know, f- as you say, it's a ritual. It's something that it, it's nostalgic. It brings you back to the past. It brings you back to your family. It brings you back to watching TV, um, you know, when, when there wasn't much football on TV. And then it brings you back to the present, which is pretty shit, really. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's... I, I, I think it's probably a piece I had to wait till, till the close season to write where there wasn't other stuff going on. But it's something that's been sort of nagging at me for a while. That, so what is a club? And, and the problem is there's, there's all kinds of different models. And, you know, if you go to, um, you have four Spanish clubs are member-owned, Germany, at least in theory, they're all member-owned with a couple of exceptions where there are works teams. Um, that's not a model we have in England, the, the idea of member-owned clubs. Some clubs lower down the pyramid, yes. Luton have a 
I mean, the Luton situation, I, I sort of allied over that in the piece. But Luton are a really interesting model where it is a consortium put together by a local businessman. Uh, he's tried to get wealthy fans involved. But then the Supporters Trust um, you know, has um, has ownership over club's image rights. So to an extent, it, it can prevent Luton being used for things that, that fans don't want Luton to be used for. I think there's a recognition at Luton that, that fans alone, you know, normal fans in inverted commas, can't provide the revenues that you need to, to get into the Premier League. So so they are an interesting exception. But you know, this idea of, of I, I guess to an extent, I, I, I came at this almost from a wrong angle, that I often get, get annoyed by the entitlement of fans and this idea of football without fans is nothing. Which is kind of true, but it's also not really true because the most important thing in football is the game and it's the players. And the first football clubs were founded by players because they wanted to play. And what what then happens through the 1870s and 1880s is that those clubs founded by players come to represent their local area. And that gives them this very, very complex relationship. And you know, people replied to me um, pointing out that, that both Liverpool and Chelsea were founded because the people who owned the grounds needed something to to generate revenue, that they weren't founded out of any kind of civic good. They were founded purely for financial reasons. And that is absolutely true. Um, But pretty quickly, I mean, Liverpool founded early 1890s, Chelsea 1905. Pretty quickly, they had come to represent that bit of of, uh, South or West London and that that bit of of Merseyside. Um, They they did take on that sort of civic role. But what I think is interesting is that when... When the league sort of drew up uh, the the regulations that governed clubs, they stipulated that no dividends had to, were, were capped at seven and a half percent, and that uh, no director could be employed by the club or could draw a salary from the club, could make money from the club. So until nineteen eighty one, when those regulations were were taken away, English clubs were not there to make a profit. There was no point in making a profit. Yeah, any profit you made, you might as well reinvest because you couldn't take it out as a director. And so that, I think, is where you see very early on there's this understanding on the part of the league, and the league obviously is the the representation of all the clubs together. What they think they are is is this club that has this civic role, partly to let people play, but also because people want to watch and that they they have a community role. And as with so much of this stuff in England, this disappears under Thatcher. And this is really hammered in 1983, uh, when there's a government report because yeah, football is falling apart in England at the time. Um, but 1983, there's a government report which which ends the practice of sharing gate receipts. So it used to be the case in the league, 25% of gate receipts would go to the away club, which just, you know, it, it tempers the advantage of the big clubs. You know, that yes, you have an advantage if you play at Old Trafford or Anfield or you know, a huge stadium, but not by as much as if you're, if you're not uh, sharing that out. I mean, yeah, we still have an FA Cup, but still 50% split. Um, but but that was what let the big clubs sort of run away with things, um, and then the other fact, the other key factor is is TV revenues. That previously, and, you know, and I'm absolutely not portraying the, the, the days of the local owners, sixties and seventies, as a golden age. You know, football in England was falling apart at that time. But at least in theory, there was a sense that you had to appeal to your local fan base because the 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 the, the main revenue stream was people buying tickets, people coming through the gate. So if local people didn't want to watch your team, you had no money. 
Now that it's still there to an extent, we saw during the pandemic, or, or you know, the, the consequence of the pandemic was was a lot of clubs had financial difficulties. But with TV revenues becoming a bigger and bigger part of a of, of um, a club's budget, then that 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 intrinsic link to the local community is is slightly eroded, and and one of the other features of that is you start to get a global fan base. And then clubs, I think, do have a responsibility, not merely to its local community, but to that global community. And that is something that I think is incredibly hard to reconcile. This is the, the weird thing, Shane, which I find, like, say, and obviously there's the irony of being that Irish person, but if you go, I haven't been to Old Trafford, but it's, I think it's more or less the same thing. You go into an cabbie in Liverpool is telling mm-hmm. you, well, locals can't get a ticket. And loads of the locals basically have season tickets, which they're flogging off for profit to yeah. the day trippers. And the association between that geezer who lives around the corner and wants to see his local team um, is, is, has become kind of obsolete because it's just gone way bigger than that and like I became a Liverpool fan by virtue of TV and because of the Irish and like I don't know if you've been to games in England but like this it, it looks it looks more like a, a load of kind of global you can see in the audience it's global day trippers rather than locals at a lot of clubs now yeah, and I guess that's something that, that the game's not going to get away from anytime no. soon. Like it's it's just going to get. Uh, not, I'm not going to use the word worse because, of course, people have every right to go and support a team in a different country if they want. If they want to do, and I've I've gone over to matches in England myself. Do you know? So it's definitely something that's that's not going away. Definitely, yeah, I would encourage same as Johnny to encourage people to uh, to read Jonathan's piece in the Guardian that uh, even talking about the division between fans and clubs and how it's never been been as wide. Before I let you go briefly, Jonathan, we we were having a debate on the show last week about um, Declan Rice and the price tag around Declan Rice. Yeah, let's talk about football, Jonathan. <laughs> let's talk about. Football, you know, but it was it was he worth the money? And 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 I get it, it kind of led into the Mason Mount debate that maybe was Mason Mount a, a better value signing for the price? But I guess again, money doesn't really matter in football. It's all monopoly money to us sitting here. Um, but but is Declan Rice worth the money that um, that has been paid for him? Do you reckon? No, um, I find it really hard to work out what 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 price does mean, <laughs> um, what players are worth. Um, is he overrated? Yeah, Sorry, he, I suppose it should be the question. Well, does he make Arsenal better than they were? Yes, I think he does. Is he potentially an exceptional footballer? Yes, I think he is. Um, does he fit straight into the Arsenal team? Yes, absolutely does. Would I be worried if City had signed him that the, the sort of monopoly position that English football seems to be moving towards with City winning five plus six, that that would be strengthened? Yeah, that would concern me. So I'm glad he's gone to Arsenal. I think he will make Arsenal better. Whether he's worth ninety million or one hundred and five million, I, I just these are just numbers. I don't know how you possibly judge that. I guess you compare him to say Enzo Fernandez and say, is he of his quality? And and Fernandez is what one hundred and twenty to Chelsea pay for him. Yeah, he was the only one. Um, so well, he's maybe similar. Maybe Fernandez just that that Fernandez's capacity to to sort of generate space from nowhere maybe just sets him slightly above. But but then. Yeah, it's it's a it's a different game when you're playing for for Benfica or for Argentina than if you're playing for West Ham. So uh, he's a really really good player. Whether whether that's a, is represented by eighty million or hundred million or hundred and twenty million, I don't know. And see, so, yeah, so much is dependent on how long they've got left in their contract. And see, so, yeah, Mason Mount for sixty million compared to Declan Rice looks like good value, but of course he was gone last year of his contract, mm. so that lowers the the price tag. So I don't know. I, I think. Uh, there are exceptional cases. So I, you know, I think, for instance, when Neymar moved from Barcelona to PSG and more than doubled the world transfer record in 2017, that's a price you're looking at thinking that makes absolutely zero sense. There's a reason for this beyond the value of the player. Um, but beyond that, I, 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 I think, you know, 
um, a number is decided upon and, and that's what it is yeah, it's a difficult one, I think, for for us football fans and, and, and reporters, I guess, to to fathom even. Uh, Jonathan, brilliant stuff as always. Thanks a million for hopping on. Cheers, thanks. See you later. OTB AM. The Sports Breakfast Show from Off the Ball.